Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. Hebrews 13, verses 10 through 14. Just to pick up the context, we are going to read verse 9 from verse 9, Hebrews chapter 13. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. As we saw last week, the writer of Hebrews, in reminding his readers of the unchanging nature and character of Christ, exhorted them not to be led away by strange doctrines. And what we need to remember is that facing severe persecution for their faith in Christ, these Jewish Christians were being pressured into abandoning their faith in Christ and to return to Judaism with its adherence to the old Mosaic Covenant. And some of them, it seems, were succumbing to that very pressure to defect from the faith, so much so that even as they were neglecting to meet for worship with their fellow believers, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, they were being lured back to the tenets and practices of Judaism, the Old Covenant. And as we saw from verse 9, it appears that the teachings of which they were warned were promoting the idea that the saving grace of God could be derived, could be accessed by eating ceremonial foods without reference to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. In other words, such teachings were all about salvation through sacraments. It's not really different from our time because there are some who even on a morning like this are administering what they call the Lord's body in the hopes that somehow there will be some kind of infusion of grace, some infusion of merit. And as such, these, these teachings to which these Jewish Christians were being exposed were diametrically opposed to the gospel of the free, redeeming grace of God in Christ. And so in debunking this heresy, the author categorically asserts that ceremonial foods are of no benefit to those who are devoted to them. That is to say, they have no saving 
redeeming value to the soul. In fact, earlier in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, he made it clear that ceremonial foods, along with other rituals, could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They could not impart peace of heart and mind and soul to the worshippers. They merely functioned as regulations for the body and were imposed until the time of reformation. That is how the writer of Hebrews describes the provisional nature of those rituals. And the time of reformation, we know, of course, relates to the finished redeeming work of Christ. The idea there is this. The writer is suggesting that the days of rituals and ceremonies are over. So having exhorted these believers to stand their ground in their unchanging Lord and not be drawn away by these strange, diverse, heretical teachings, the author here in verses 10 through 14 again turns their attention to Christ to what they have in him and the relationship they sustain to him. He begins in verse 10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar, he says. And this seems to be somewhat of an abrupt Transition. So the question becomes, why would the writer bring up at this point the matter of believers in Christ having an altar? Again, bear in mind, as we said earlier, as we have said in past studies, the circumstances of these Christians under constant persecution from their fellow Jews because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These Christians were being ostracized. They were being distanced by their fellow Jews. We have some idea of that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, which among other things would involve excommunication from the temple. And facing the the temptation to return to Judaism, some of them, it seems, felt as though they were missing out on what they once considered the delights of temple worship. Remember now, put yourself in the shoes of those people, particularly Eastern peoples when ostracized. That's a big, that's a huge deal. They were cut off from the temple, which was basically the rallying point of the nation. In our terms today, we would say that's a rallying point of the culture. They were cut off from the privileges of the the temple, they were distanced by their fellow Jews. And it seems they longed for the tangible, physical appealing elements of temple worship. They missed, among other things, their priests, their altars, and so on. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is driving home to these wavering, confused Jewish Christians the fact that there's no valid, legitimate reason as to why they should want to return to the tenets and trappings of Judaism. He's saying to them, as it were, yes, on account of your faith in Christ, you have been ostracized, you have been distanced, 
Yes, you no longer have access to a physical, visible altar on which to offer up sacrifices. Yet you are not really missing anything. For the truth is, in Christ, our perfect high priest and sacrifice for sins, we have an altar. We have an altar. We have the real deal, is what he's saying. We have the real thing. We have not the shadow, but the substance. And it's though the writer is saying to these Jewish Christians, from our altar, we eat not the flesh of animals, we eat not the flesh of bulls and of goats, which cannot take away sins, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. But spiritually speaking, we eat of Christ, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. And of course, the author does not spell out the precise nature of this altar which we believers have in Christ. He says absolutely nothing as to what constitutes this altar. And let me say here, it's not necessary that he should do so. Many commentators, many Bible uh, commentators spend time trying to figure out what is this altar that we as Christians have. And I'm suggesting that if we read the book of Hebrews and if we gather the context of the book of Hebrews in relation to this passage, the suggestion is that as far as the author is concerned, the altar of which he speaks is the representative symbol of the saving, redeeming work of God which has been fulfilled in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the altar we have as Christians, we have reference to the cross upon which our Lord Jesus was offered as a sacrifice for sins. It may refer to that altar in the heavenly sanctuary where Christ, by means of his own blood, entered once for all, thereby securing eternal redemption for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, compared with Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. At any rate, the writer assures his readers, we have an altar. I want to say to us this morning, we have an altar. We as Christians have an altar. We do not offer up animal sacrifices. We already have a perfect sacrifice in the Lord Jesus who was offered up on the altar of that cross over 2,000 years ago, and we are partaking, we are eating, we are eating and assimilating, as it were, the benefits of a perfect, complete salvation in our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer is saying here, then, we have an altar, and in so saying, he then asserts, continuing verse 10, that those, here's what he says, that those who serve at the tent, that is at the tabernacle, have no right to eat from this altar. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. Now, what is the writer doing here? You see, what he's doing is this. He's drawing a line of demarcation 
between those who are of faith in Christ and his finished work of redemption on the cross and those who are insisting on adhering to the Mosaic law with all its trappings, with all its rituals, with all its ceremonies, with all its legalistic observations. He is categorically asserting that there is a vast world of difference, a vast world of difference. In fact, a fundamental line of separation between the altar we have as Christians and the altar there at the tabernacle, the altar of Judaism. Picking up from the thought of verse 9, which we saw last week, concerned the ineffectiveness of foods, sacrificial foods, to meet the needs of the soul. His point is this, that since believers in Christ have an altar, since believers in Christ are no longer obliged to adhere to the Levitical sacrificial system by virtue of the perfect atoning sacrifice of Christ, those who continue to observe the rituals of the tabernacle, those who continue to adhere to those rites and ceremonies relating to foods so as to earn God's favor, they are really at odds with the saving purpose of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying this, that they stand in complete opposition to the gospel of God's saving grace through faith and trust in Christ. And as such, he's saying they have no right to eat from that altar which we as Christians have in Christ, which is to say this, that they are not entitled to partake of its saving benefits. You say, what is, how do you explain what is happening here? Here's the point. In as much as these people, these Judaizers, these people who are adhering to the old Mosaic Covenant, have disqualified themselves from partaking of our altar by their decided allegiance to law-keeping, to seeking salvation by works, they have no right to eat. The Greek word that's used here for right is the same Greek word that's used in John chapter 1, verse 12, where John, speaking of those who believed on Christ, those who received Christ, he says this, that he, that is Christ, gave them the right to become the children of God. And the truth that John expresses there in John chapter 1 verse 12, that those who become children of God have the right to become such because of their faith in Jesus Christ, that truth that John expresses in John 1 12 is really the same thing that the author of Hebrews is saying here in our text. And that is, it's only those who are trusting in Christ, only those who are trusting in Christ and his finished work, looking away from all else, looking away from their religiosity, looking away from their good works, looking away from their law-keeping and trying to be good so as to earn their salvation, only such has the right to partake, to benefit from the altar of a complete, perfect salvation in Jesus Christ. Essentially, the point of his argument then is this that there can be no salvation 
where there's a mingling of law with grace. That's really what he's saying, you know. He's saying that there can be no salvation where there's a mingling of law with grace and where there's a mingling of faith with works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is what? The gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As Paul affirms in Galatians chapter 2 verses 16 through 21, he says this, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He says, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. Here it comes, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so with regard to his readers, as he speaks of these people, these Judaizers who are insisting on their law-keeping, who are insisting on observing the rituals of the old covenant so as to find saving favor with God, it's as though he's saying indirectly now, turning his attention to his readers, he's saying to them as it were, you cannot have it both ways. He's saying to them as it were, Either you anchor faith in Christ as your all-sufficient and high priest and savior, or you return to your legalistic observance of sacrificial ritual, which will do you no good, which will be of no saving benefit to you. He's saying to them, you must choose one or the other. If you insist on law-keeping, if you are insisting on your good works, if you are insisting on believing that by taking the sacraments that will make you more saved, if you believe that your baptism is what saves you, then here's the point. You have disqualified yourself from the saving benefits of Christ. I've heard those are serious warnings. The question is, in what are you trusting to what are you looking for your salvation? The problem with, with these Christians the writer was addressing was that they were coming out of Judaism. They were coming out of the old Mosaic system with its emphasis on law-keeping, with its emphasis on eating the right foods, with, 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 with eating these foods, with the understanding that somehow it is going to bring them into closer favor and fellowship with God. And the writer is saying, look, Either it is that you're going to trust Christ alone or you're going to return to your old legalistic way of worship because here's the point. The moment you're holding on to Judaism, the moment you're holding on to your law-keeping, the moment you're holding on to your religiosity and trying to hold on to Christ, you are disqualified. You have no right to partake of the saving benefits of Christ's finished redemptive work. Indeed, such was a similar warning that Paul issued to the Galatian Christians who were being lured away from faith in Christ as a sole means of their salvation. They were being lured away to the works of the law. Here's Paul's warning to them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. 
These were professing believers who were on the verge of defecting from Christ. They were on the verge of returning to the Jewish way of worship. And here's what Paul said to them by way of warning. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, and circumcision, Mark, was the, you would say was the, the summary symbol of Judaism. He says, in other words, if you, if you go and you embrace Judaism with all its tenets, with all its trappings, here's what he says. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the law. Listen to this. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. We have an altar. The altar we have, let me say this, is not the mass. The altar is not the mass. Do you notice the writer leaves it alone? And the context of the book of Hebrews dictates that the altar is a symbolic representation of the work of Christ that is finished. But what is happening today? People are saying, look, we every day are offering up the body of Christ. We are actually reenacting his suffering all over again. What blasphemy? Here's the point. Christ died once for sins. And having died once, the redemption that he accomplished is perfect, is finished. Remember his final words, among his final words on the cross, as he hung there in the Greek, tetelestai. Literally, it is finished. It stands finished and it continues to stand finished. Imperfectly, the, the, the perfect tense, that's what is suggested there. That having been finished, it continues to be in a finished state. That's our redemption. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent, those who are insisting on their law-keeping, those who are insisting on the ways of Judaism and the ways of rites and ceremonies, they have no right to eat. Why? Because they are mingling law with grace. They are mingling faith with works. Now, having mentioned the altar we have as Christians, the author then turns his reader's attention to what is evidently his allusion to the Day of Atonement. And in so doing, he reminds them of what was done to the bodies of the animals that were, after the blood was applied, the blood of those slain animals on the Day of Atonement, after the blood was applied to the holy places as a sacrifice for sin. Verse 11, here's what he says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Here he is referring to Leviticus chapter 16 verse 27. That's what happened on the day of atonement. Two animals were taken, a bull and a goat. They were slain. The blood was applied to the holy places. And afterwards... The carcass of the animals, the skin, the, the whole carcass of the animal was to be taken and was to be burned outside the city. 
And with this, the author goes on in verse 12 to establish the parallel between the bodies of those sacrificial animals which were burnt outside the camp and Jesus who suffered outside the gate, that is, outside the gate of Jerusalem. Just as the blood of the animals sacrificed, uh, just as the blood of those animals sanctified the holy places of the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, serving as a sacrifice for sin, Similarly, the writer says this, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There it was that in being unjustly condemned and shamefully treated like a common criminal, our Lord Jesus was taken outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem where he was crucified, he was nailed to a cross. But in reality, suffering and dying there on the cross for sins, the word of God teaches he was burnt and consumed, as it were, by the fire of divine wrath. As he hung there on the cross like a common criminal, in reality, he was hanging there for your sins and mine. And we can say, my friends, that as he hung there, the sword of divine wrath pierced him. The fires of divine wrath raged against him. Why? Because he was being made sin for us. He who knew no sin was being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that he suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem denotes that his death was not for the Jews only, but for all peoples. His death was for sinners of all kinds, sinners of all times, and sinners in all places. And notice from our text that not only is it that the sufferings of Christ and the shed blood of Christ saves one from sin, but notice what the text says. It more so, it sanctifies those who are saved because the text tells us there that he sanctifies them by his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ not only saves, but it sanctifies. That is to say, it cleanses one. It changes one. It cuts one off from making a practice of sin. This is the message of the gospel that Christ suffered for sin, so as to save us, so as to sanctify us by his blood, so as to set apart those who believe and trust in him as Savior, that they can worship and walk with God in newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 4. My friends, bear this in mind, that Jesus Christ died not only to save us, he died to sanctify us. He died not just to save us, he died not to save us in our sins, but he died to save us and to cleanse us from our sins. This leads to his concluding argument in verses 13 and 14. He says this, therefore, therefore, 
let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And the point here is that in view of the fact that ours is a one suffering Savior, a Savior who suffered shame and reproach, a Savior who suffered at the hands of a sinful, hostile world. He was taken outside the city, treated as a common criminal, cruelly nailed to a cross. The writer is suggesting then that you and I as Christians, you and I as believers in him, are obliged to follow in his steps going to him outside the camp, as it were, sharing in his sufferings, bearing the reproach he endured. My friends, here we are reminded, we see two things at least in this passage so far. One, we see the freeness of God's saving grace, that apart from works, apart from our trying to be good, apart from our doing this and that, God freely saves us. He saves us by his grace. But here we're reminded that with salvation in Christ, with, with the free great saving grace of God in Christ comes the call to discipleship. The call to take the path that he walked, which of course is a path that entails suffering. Here's a reminder to us that Christian living is a matter of serious, hazardous living. It costs us nothing to be saved, but it costs us everything to live for the Lord and to be a follower of his. Again, this was the experience of these Jewish believers. They were suffering reproach for the sake of Christ. The writer is encouraging them to turn from the ceremonies and rites of the Mosaic system, the old Levitical covenant, to fully embrace Christ. And in the same breath, he's reminding them that maintaining faith in Christ will not be without a cost. He's reminding them that they will be persecuted. Is reminding them that they will be ostracized. They will be distanced from their fellow Jews. And this is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. The writer is saying, my friend, here in verse 14, that to be Christian is to go where Christ is. Remember what our Lord Jesus says? For where, my, where, I, I, where I am, there will my servants be. And it means that we are, must be prepared to go with him even in the path of suffering. We must go with him where he walked, and that walk is necessarily a path of suffering and of bearing reproach. And you and I need to remember that. We need to be mindful of the fact that identification with Christ as a follower of his at once involves participation in his suffering. It involves sharing the reproach he endured and if need be dying for his sake. As Paul informs the Philippian Christians in Philippians chapter 1 verses 29 and 30, and these are verses well worth noting. He says, for it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I will have. And this is why we say, in fact, one of the things I say often to Christians, we never promise those who come to Christ a bed of roses. There are people who teach, come to Christ, and he will make life wonderful for you. He will give you a fulfilled life. He will give you a happy life. He will bless you in your finances. Your family will be fine. But, oh, my friends, the reality is this, that never are we more in trouble, never are we more faced with challenges, never are we more faced with crises, never are we more, more faced with hostility from the world than when we are with Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 assures us, yes, indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. For some, it might mean ostracism from family members. For others, it might mean you pay for it on the job. You People know who you are, your stand for Christ, what they do. It affects your, your upward mobility at the job. Why? Because you are bad for business as a Christian. And yet the truth is the cost we must be willing to bear if ever we are going to be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, what incentive do believers in Christ have for going outside the camp to bear the reproach of Christ? What incentive, what motivation do we have as Christians to go outside the camp, the camp of a Christless religion, the camp of worldly attractions, the camp of worldly affirmation? What, what incentive do you and I have as Christians to go with Christ, go to Christ outside the camp and bear his reproach, bear suffering for his name? Well, it is a consideration of the truth that expressed in verse 14. Notice what he says there in verse 14 as he encourages his readers to go with Christ, go to Christ outside the camp. He says this, For here, that is in this world, in this life, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. For here... We need to go to Christ outside the camp. We need to be prepared to bear his reproach. Why? What will motivate us to do that? The consideration that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Question is, how do we as Christians embrace whatever reproach, whatever suffering into which our faith in Christ brings us? And the answer is this, we do so as we come to grips with the truth that this world is not our true and lasting home. As Christians, we patiently endure reproaches and sufferings for Christ as we reckon on the reality of the heavenly Jerusalem, that glorious eternal city of God. This is not fairy tale. This is not make believe. This is not pie in the sky. This is the promise of the word of God that here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. Can I show you in a practical way that this is not our world, not our home? 
You saw what happened a year and a, a year and a half ago, roughly. What with the shutdowns, what with the, pan, the pandemic that overtook the world. You saw what happened. In fact, you have, you have been seeing what has been happening to the stock market. You are, you are seeing what is happening with trends in our world where evil men seem to want to take over this world. You see what's happening. You see the trend. And there is something that tells us that as the people of God, this is not our rest. This is not where God would have us settle. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we seek one that is to come. The money is failing. Our securities are, are failing. Our freedoms are being threatened. And the truth of the matter is this, that at the end of the day, our securities, our freedoms, all that spells for life, may I suggest this, pardon me for this, all that spells life, pursuit, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness can only be found in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, who will someday come and establish his kingdom here on earth. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, our text says. It was a realization of this truth which enabled Moses, Moses, to choose, the word of God says, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Do you know who Moses was? Moses grew up in a palace. Moses had the best education in the world at that time. He was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He, practically speaking, was next in line for the throne. But there came a time when the Bible says Moses came to grips with the fact that he would prefer mistreatment with the people of God. He would prefer to, to, to be mistreated, to be persecuted with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's what the Bible says, verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. What is the reward? The city. The city. Hence, verse 27 of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith he left Egypt. He left Egypt. He left Egypt with all its glories, with all its power, with all its pomp, with all its pride. Why? Because Moses recognized that here we have no lasting city. As well, it was a realization of this truth that we have no city here which enabled Abraham, Abraham, even as he lived in the land of Canaan, to look forward to the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. It was a conviction of this reality that here we have no city, no lasting city, but we seek one to come which enabled the various hearers of the faith to keep trusting God despite the fact that they did not receive the things that were promised. Let me say this, and I think it's worth saying. There are people, you see, who become discouraged. They become weary. 
and they become disillusioned. And what they do, do what do they do? They jettison the faith. They cast off faith in God. Why? Because they were told that if you are serving God, this, that will happen and the other. And then what happens? The reality is when the crunch of life comes in, they pray to God, they pray to God, they pray to God, and nothing seems to be happening. Let me say this, and this is worth noting. Some of the things we desire, and we must bear our minds for this. Some of the things we desire, you see, um, security. More money, better health, and so on. Some of these things we, we might never realize. And no amount of praying is going to change it. See? And if we do not understand this, then we are going to become sorely disappointed and disillusioned. And worse yet, stop serving God. Listen to the heroes of the faith, what the writer of Hebrews says of them. Listen, Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith. Don't the world make fun of faith today? They say, listen, you go on with your faith. You're going to die with that faith and die a pauper. Have you ever heard that? Yes. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, that is by faith, and having acknowledged that they were, here it comes, strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the book of Hebrews, the writer is encouraging Christians who are being persecuted and who are losing their property. They were losing all their security. The, the, the authorities were coming against them. The, their fellow Jews were hostile toward them. They were excommunicated, distanced. Listen, these people had nothing else to look to. They realized the truth of what the writer was saying. The need to go out to Jesus outside the camp. Go outside the attractions of this world. Go outside the affirmations of this world. After, after all, this world crucified Jesus. So we can't expect anything better. But what sustained them was the fact that they were looking beyond this world. Somebody says, well, that's pie-in-the-sky religion. If it's pie-in-the-sky religion, let me tell you something, it's the sweetest pie. And it's not make-believe. Why? Because it's God himself, the God who cannot lie, who promises these things. Don't ask me to rationalize it. Don't ask me to explain it. I believe it because that's the, what the word of God says. And that city, my friend, was the very city which the Apostle John saw, Revelation 21, 10, and 11, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And praise God, we are the most powerful, impressive cities 
here on earth will eventually collapse, will eventually crumble into the dust, crumble into oblivion, this, our prospective city, will last forever and forever and forever. Why? Because it is a city that has foundations. Why will the cities of this world crumble? Because they have no foundation. They're, listen, to begin with, there's no moral foundation. You say, what are you talking about? The truth is a city, a country, is not built and will not stand if it's not standing on the foundation of the word of God. See, and that's why earthly cities will crumble. They have no foundation. But this city will last forever. Why? Because it is rooted in God. It is rooted in the promises of God. It is built on the principles of righteousness, justice, truth, holiness, and so on. It is to this city which all who trust and believe in Christ as their Savior will someday dwell. And the question as we close is this. Do you know him? Have you trusted him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, looking away from all else, looking away from yourself, trusting in him and him alone to save you? You see, that's where it's at, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling these Christians. It cannot be Christ and. It must be Christ Christ, Christ, all the way. It must be faith in the finished work of Christ. If somehow at the back of your mind, you are thinking that you have to do this and that, you have to attend this service and that, you have to pray how many times a day, listen, that's not salvation. Salvation begins the moment you come to the end of yourselves, realizing that you're no good, you're not righteous, you're a pauper, you're bankrupt when it comes to the righteousness of God, but that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, not only supplies you with the righteousness that you're lacking, but he pays for, he has paid for your unrighteousness. And salvation is all the taking from him. It's all a matter of trusting in him and him alone to save.